I have and always will be a fan of music. In the heyday of 90s R&B music, there were hit songs that came out and people loved them. But my favorite was when the musicians took that same song and remixed it into a new sound, rhythm, and key. Remixes were a staple of the 90s. To hear an already good song in a new way wowed people, and many looked forward to new remixes to come. In this episode of Groundwork, we'll see Jesus' remixed teachings from the law and how these remixes are helpful and vital for us today. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Daryl Delaney. And Scott, we are at the halfway mark of our six-part series on the Sermon on the Mount. The first episode was on the Beatitudes in the first 12 verses of Matthew. And the second episode was being on salt and light. And today, we're going to talk about various topics that Jesus dealt with in one fell swoop. That's right. Some of this uh, sounds sort of outdated or old-fashioned and so forth because Jesus is going to talk a lot about the law and what we need to do to live a new life and so forth and so on. Uh, And really what what he's going to be talking about here, Daryl, is uh, falls for Christians into the category of gratitude. So we're going to talk about the law. You know, sometimes people think that the law, well, we're saved by grace, right? Not by the law, right? The law was the Old Testament. Now we're saved by grace. Law doesn't matter. Jesus teaches the law does matter. It doesn't get you saved by keeping it, but once you are saved, you're set free to then keep the law because the law is God's operating instructions for creation. I like how you brought up the fact that it's gratitude because we learned that in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's guilt, grace, and then gratitude. Right. And the fact that we have a new life, we, we need to know how to live that new life. And you can go back to the law to find out what that is. And when the people in his time saw Moses' law, they knew that was for life and for conduct. What we don't need to mix up is the fact that we don't earn our own righteousness with that kind of practice. But out of the righteousness we're already been afforded by Jesus, we get to live a new life. And he goes into that in this passage. Yep. In fact, Jesus is going to make it plain as he can, beginning in verse 17 now of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I love the fact that Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's good news for us for a couple of reasons. I think the first one is that even though we're under grace, we understand that Jesus did everything in the law that we couldn't do. I mean, the Israelites found out years and years ago that they could not keep the law and they needed somebody to come in and atone for the sins that came from them breaking the law. And the second thing is that because he did that fulfilling, he has earned the righteousness that he gives to us as a grace gift through salvation and faith. So we get to enjoy the benefit of him fulfilling that law in his life and his work, even though we didn't do that law ourselves. Exactly. Sometimes Jesus is called the end of the law. 
on one level, people think, oh, so it's done, <laughs> the end. No, not end in the sense of over and done with. The Greek word is telos. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, right? And in two ways. One, he kept it perfectly and now credits us with that perfect righteousness. So we get credit as if we had kept it perfectly, even though we didn't. Thanks, Romans 5. Exactly. And the other sense in, in which Jesus is the fulfillment of the law is that in his own life, he embodied what the law is. And guess what? Keeping the law makes you gracious and kind and open and hospitable and all the things Jesus was and all the things the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not. So isn't it interesting, Daryl, that he says your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees? Oh, man, that's a zinger at the Pharisees because it seems that the Pharisees had all the external things down, the piety. Yep. They would do the ceremonial washings in front of people. They would give alms and offerings in front of people so that everyone would see their good deeds. And Jesus actually tells us that it's not about all the externals. There's something that needs to happen in our hearts. And if we don't have a heart change, all of those actions are futile. All of those actions only bring glory to us as people. They don't point back to our Heavenly Father. And there's a pride and self-righteousness that can come from us checking off our legalistic boxes. And he's saying, Pharisees, you got to do more righteousness than that. You can't be like those people. Yep. So it's not an external matter. We're going to get to that in just a second, the first example of that. I do think in the popular imagination, though, uh, Daryl, it also probably made people think, well, nobody could be as good as the Pharisees. So there is a sense in which Jesus is saying, well, you're right about that, too. It's all about grace. I mean, you're going to have to be transformed by grace to be have any chance to keep this law because, as Jesus is going to go on to say what you just said, Daryl, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what's on the inside, and Jesus uh, gives us the first example of that uh, in terms of what it really means to not murder. So it says here, if we continue in chapter 5, verse 21, it says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow. Some people have pointed out that what Jesus is going to do here, and we're going to see uh, in the rest of the program with more of the Ten Commandments, is that Jesus radicalizes the commandments in the sense of the Latin word radix, which means root. Mm -hmm. Jesus is getting to the root of this. And so here he's saying, hey, you've never shot somebody. You never slipped a knife in between somebody's ribs. You never actually literally took a life. Good. But you know what? When you're angry enough to curse somebody, that's murder too. I want you to be loving. A loving person doesn't murder a person physically, but a loving person doesn't murder them emotionally either. Yeah, that word raka is not a compliment at all. No. <laughs> that word raka is a contempt word, is a disrespectful, a, a public humiliating word. If you yelled out, you fool to someone and everybody's watching, you literally essentially murdered their character in front of the people. And I know people we could say, yeah, I haven't stabbed somebody. I haven't shot anybody. But you actually could do it in 140 characters or less online where <laughs> you said you gossip something, you inadvertently or you intentionally destroy 
person was character. And Jesus is saying, it's not just about what you do physically, but it's your heart and your intention and your motive behind it. And I'd love for Jesus to continue to challenge us this way. And God forgive us when we go astray in this area. Exactly. Murder by tweet. I mean, you can do it. It happens every day uh, because it does indeed get at the position of your heart over against other people. Now, we should point out that in the Bible, there is such a thing as wisdom and folly. And the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament talks a lot about fools. No, we don't mean that. That's not what we mean here in terms of somebody who's wise versus being foolish. This is a contempt word. As you said, a raka or, or a fool in this sense is a way to destroy someone's character and mind and heart. And Daryl, we know sometimes bullying of young people does lead to their physical death. They commit suicide. If we ever needed to see the connection between what Jesus is saying here and actual physical death, that's a very, very sad example. Jesus is getting at the root, at the radix. He's radicalizing the law, and he's going to keep doing that in what comes up next. So stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And uh, Daryl, let's jump right back into the teachings of Jesus here as he's talking about the law and the deeper parts of the law here in Matthew 5. Some of the Ten Commandments are coming in here. We just looked at uh, what he really thinks thou shalt not murder means. It also means what comes out of our mouths as reflective of what's in our hearts. But now he's going to go on in verse 23 and talk about something that's not strictly in the Ten Commandments, but it's important. Well, it says here, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. It says settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So this is interesting. Here, Jesus makes a connection between worship, proper worship of God, and everything else going on in their lives, right? So anybody who wants to treat Sunday, let's say, going to church as something separate from their Monday through Saturday life, Jesus is saying, no, they're, they're deeply connected. If you've got problems with somebody, if you are yourself guilty of some injustice, you owe somebody something, or if you yourself, you know, have an adversary, don't worship God until you get that straightened out. Again, just like what we said with the murder, get your heart in the right place, then come and worship God. And you know what's interesting? Jesus says, not just if you have an ought with your neighbor, but if your neighbor has an ought with you. 
So then you have to be in tune and connected in your relationships to know not just your vertical relationship with God, but your horizontal relationships with one another. We need to address and make sure that there if there is anything we can reconcile, we can say, I did my part. And if they don't forgive me, that's fine. But I tried. I made an effort. I think it's really interesting how many Christians actually take each other to court and actually sue each other. And I feel like if we had this conversation or a way to reconcile, we may not make it to court. We might be able to settle outside of court. I know sometimes people see that as a bad thing when you settle outside of court. But this is actually a good thing in this case. Yeah, it's a matter of our relationships. Jesus is very concerned about our relationships, and he wants us as far as it lays with us anyway, right? I mean, as you said, Daryl, a minute ago, sometimes we try to reconcile with somebody we really want to, and they don't want anything to do with us. You know, well, you've hit a wall. It doesn't mean you can't go to church. It doesn't mean you can't take the Lord's Supper. You did your best, and maybe this person will come around, but try. Anyway, try. Don't come into worship with your heart a cauldron of resentment and anger. You know, nobody can see it, but God can. Um, And it taints your worship, right? It taints your worship. So don't do that. So that's an important warning about worship. But then Jesus returns now also to another of the Ten Commandments. In verse 27 of Matthew 5, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus is talking about adultery. He's still following the Ten Commandments here. Of course, we know adultery is when you have a romantic relationship with someone outside of your spouse. And today we'd call it cheating. And Jesus is saying that that shouldn't happen, not only in the physical act, but if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you literally committed adultery with them in your heart. So he's also tying not just the physical act, but the heart condition. And it's very important for us to check our hearts in these matters. Exactly. And I think in our modern day context in particular, I don't know if in Jesus' day there was any equivalent of pornography, but these are things designed to incite lust in us for people other than the person to whom you are married. And Jesus uses radical language here to tell us, look, just like with murder, this is about your heart and your internal disposition. You know, better you could gouge out your eye than spend your whole life looking at the wrong thing or looking at other people and objectifying them for your own pleasure and so forth. Uh, Again, very radical language. Clearly, Jesus is trying to get our attention. I think that it does get our attention. And Paul picks up on it in Ephesians 5, 3, when he says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or lust of any kind. And we see in this culture that we have hyper-sexualized culture that gives more than hints everywhere. And we have to actually, you know, listen to Jesus teaching here, even though he's using hyperbole again, where he says, if your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you sin, cut it off. But there are ways that we can abstain from feeding our sinful flesh and our sinful desires. If we they limit what we see, if we limit what we touch, those things are ways to actually honor God and keep it pure. Because ultimately, if we're believers, we are the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom. And we need to be faithful to our spouse in this case. And so we need to walk faithfully and allow God's grace to help us when we fall down. 
Exactly. And it's a challenge today. I mean, Daryl, you you can't see a TV ad for a cheeseburger Hello. without somebody trying to, uh, you know, make it have something to do with sex and, and lust. So it is a very great challenge. But Jesus definitely is getting our attention through radical imagery. He has one more related thing that we'll look at yet in this segment, starting in verse 31. Well, Jesus says here, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So again, Jesus is getting our attention here. He wants us to get down to the root. Again, the radix, the radicalizing of the law here. And he is saying the covenant of marriage is important. (laughs) It's sacred. It is all important. And you can never treat it casually. You can't just, and he's talking mostly to men here, because in Jesus' day, women couldn't initiate a divorce. Only the man could. So Jesus is saying, you can't just, you know, say divorced, you know, hand her a piece of paper and it's done like it's no big deal. No, in God's eye, marriage is for life. And we need to respect that as much as we can. And, you know, I just want to put my pastoral hat on here if I can, Scott. You know, for people who go through traumatic situations, domestic abuse or anything that brought harm to self or others, I do not counsel them to go back into those situations because they don't want to break this divorce rule here because it could be something that could be way worse if they stay in that situation. But I do know that this teaching was, I think, for people who had selfish interests. I just don't want to be married anymore. We have irreconcilable differences, but can't really name the differences. But he dealt with the heart again. If it's a lust-controlled person who is not able to stay faithful, that is not a reason to divorce. So Jesus is trying to help us understand that God does not like divorce. But for those who have already experienced divorce, you're in a remarriage, there is forgiveness. And if you confess those things, God can forgive those things and give you grace. And I think a lot of churches have discovered that You know, there are lots and lots of ways to break the covenant of marriage. Right. Obviously, cheating, you know, adultery uh, breaks it. And Jesus singles that out here. But you are breaking your covenant. You are being unfaithful as a spouse when you beat your wife up or you abuse children or you're a danger in some other way. There are lots of ways. And there's, as you just said, Daryl, God understands that and is the God of grace and of new beginnings. But as we wrap up this episode, uh, let's see what Jesus says about oaths and some other things that uh, go to our practical daily lives. So stay tuned. What does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork. And Scott, we have covered a lot of ground following Jesus' teachings through the Sermon on the Mount. And in this final segment, we wanted to let people know Jesus teaches on how important it is to keep your word, but also some practical steps on how to walk out these teachings. Exactly. Verse 33, Matthew 5. Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. 
But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Of course, we know, Scott, an oath is a vow. It's a promise to do something. And when people usually swear by something, they swear by something greater than them or of great value to them. So if I say, I swear to God, or I put that on my mother's life or my children, this and that, we find those things that we swear by to be precious. But Jesus is saying, you don't need to do all of that. All you need to do is make a commitment and follow through on that commitment. If your yes is yes and your no is no, we can trust you at your word. And that was the point, I think, of what Jesus is saying. Yep. Uh, and it's interesting. Jesus is saying, you know, look, don't bring in heaven or earth or <laughs> Jerusalem or anything else, or don't even swear in your own head. None of it belongs to you. It's God's earth, God's city. It's God's head. You can't even change the color of the hair on your head. So just say yes or no. And if you're a person of good character, here's what Jesus is getting at, right? If you're a person of good character and you tell somebody yes or no, that's all you need to say. They believe you. And I don't know about you, Daryl, but, you know, people who kind of jump up and down on one leg and try to bolster their promises with lots of uh, colorful language, they always seem kind of shaky to me, you know. Oh, I swear in the eyes of my children. It's like, why are you being so dramatic? I think you're lying to me. If you were really confident, if you really want me to believe you, just say, I promise. You'll see. I promise you. That's all you need to say, Jesus says, because otherwise you're probably trying to cover something up. If you have a, a consistent track record, you don't have to do that. Right. And that's really what Jesus is saying. So our character will shine through. Then our words really mean something. Uh, I know people who have had promises broken and people's word has not meant anything. And Jesus is saying, if you live out the way you're supposed to live, then you could just say yes or no. Oh, exactly. And you know what, Daryl? We both have this. Everybody has. If you know somebody who has repeatedly broke their promise to you, it doesn't matter what they say. Swear to God. You know, they can they can swear by anything they want. I'm not going to believe them again, and neither are you, right? Right. You don't help yourself by invoking heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your own head, your children, your mama. It doesn't matter. If you break your promise consistently, I just don't believe you. And Jesus says, be the kind of person who can be believed. That's a beautiful thing. So, I mean— what have we learned here? We've been thinking about many of these teachings that Jesus has done. I know the first thing is that God cares about what we do, but he also cares about our hearts. That's very important because heart and motive are connected to our actions. Exactly. And that's what we've been saying, that Jesus goes to the root. And the root of the law, unlike the Pharisees who only kept it on the outside, but on the inside, Jesus will later say, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead bodies. Be good on the inside, Jesus is saying. God looks at the heart. And the heart is also the locus, the location from which the rest of your life you gets go. lived out. So be good on the inside. I think another thing that we learned, too, is that relationships are important and how we treat others matters to God. What we say, what we do and how we respond to people. You mentioned earlier people who we think are beneath us, whatever position or status they have, follow how we treat them and care how we treat them because God cares about how we treat them as well. Exactly. Don't come to worship. Uh, I mean, this is what the Old Testament prophets really assailed the Israelites for. They spent all week 
living lives of injustice, and then they come to the temple on the Sabbath and say, well, I guess this makes it all okay. God says, no, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, what you do the rest of the week matters. But of course, all of this is because we've been transformed by grace. We're not trying to earn our way into the kingdom. This is how we act after we've been brought into the kingdom. The righteousness we live is purely by grace alone. That righteousness is not earned by pious external actions, but it is a gift given to us. Thank you, God, for that. But also that God's standards are different than the standards of the world. Exactly. And it's the right way to live, right? I mean, that's the great thing. We we forget, Daryl, that in the Old Testament, the law of God was regarded by Israel as a gift of grace. It's a gift to be given the owner's manual for life, yes. right? If you've ever tried to program a, a DVD player or something without the owner's manual, you know it's impossible. You need the instructions. And when you have them, things go so much better. God wants us to flourish. God wants us to live lives of delight. And that's why Jesus is the end, the fulfillment of the law. He himself perfectly embodies the law. He himself perfectly fulfilled the law and gives us credit. And so all we can say is thanks be to God. Thank you for listening and digging deeply into scripture with Groundwork. We hope you'll join us again next time as we continue our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount by examining his teaching on prayer and the prayer he teaches his disciples, the one we now know as the Lord's Prayer. Connect with us now at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or to tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information and to find more resources to encourage your faith. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Daryl Delaney. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is 